The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Today's focus on fixed income is brought to you by PIMCO, a global leader in active fixed income. Learn how PIMCO creates opportunities for investors at PIMCO.com slash bonds. All investments contain risk and may lose value. Consult your investment professional before investing. All right. So Lisa Bromwitz long ago told me I need to pay attention to these treasury auctions. And before, like, really, do I have to? Apparently, there was a two-year treasury auction yesterday that saw some weak demand. I think a five-year one is, is on deck here. So Ira Jersey, he's our chief U.S. interest rate strategist. He's going to tell us why don't we him. need to pay attention to treasury I, you auctions. You know, I had a producer, um, Tim Andriacci. He, he was always freaking out about the treasury auctions because our show was at 1 o'clock, and they right. always come out. I mean, what they, they rarely tell you anything, don't they, Ira? So they... They tell you where demand is at that moment, right? And and I think that the reason why the Treasury auctions are so important right now is because they, they give you a hint as to who's willing to take risk and if investors are willing to take risk or not. And, and the last couple of months, you've seen a significant reduction in demand by particularly foreigners and domestic investment funds uh, for for treasuries at auction. And and it just shows you that, like, you know, it improves the level. When, when, when you think about the fixed income market, um, it's not as, as homogenous as, say, the equity market is in, in general. So you have multiple bonds with different maturities, so you have a lot of different instruments at play. And by having a new issue, whether it's in, a, in the corporate world or in the um, or, or in the treasury market, um, it, you, you get the gauged uh, real demand for that new supply. And you've seen that even though the sizes of the treasury auctions are getting smaller, you're seeing demand go down even faster. And that's the reason you've seen a lot of softness in some of these, these issues. So why, why are the international buyers, why are they not there? Maybe like the, maybe how they used to be. Well, but partially because I think there is a preference for cash right now. Because if if you're even if you're a foreign uh, buyer, where you know yields in the U.S. are you know multiples of what they are in your your home jurisdiction, if you think that interest rates are going to keep going up, you you don't want to be buying a bond because then you'll wind up losing money on on the price side. Um, you know, so so as as two year Treasury yields, if they go up from you know four percent to five percent, you're going to lose um, you're going to lose a couple of percent in um, in terms of opportunity cost, uh, and and the price of that instrument will go down. So I think that's the that's the a couple of the big reasons is that you don't have the um, you know massive demand. You also have on the other side 
and this is this is part of the issue I think with with the foreign in, investors in, in terms of central banks is that central banks want to uh, you know want want to prop up their own currencies because their own currencies are slipping very quickly against the dollar and if they go out and they go buy two year treasuries they also have to buy dollars on top of that which will just weaken their currency even further so there's uh, so, so foreign exchange managers aren't going to be involved in in these auctions like they sometimes are. I'm just surprised uh, the Japanese. I mean. You're, if if you're looking at a situation where there's no reason for the yen to um, go down, well, well, let's say this: if you're looking at a situation where the finance ministry is defending the yen, and um, you know your interest rates on the ten year are zero point two percent versus you know four percent in the U.S., wouldn't you want that? Well, no, because again, you have to buy dollars then, and you're just weakening the yen versus buying yeah, versus the dollar. And and if you're trying to defend your currency and trying to stop your currency from falling further, you want to actually be selling uh, dollar-denominated assets and buying yen-denominated assets. And that's the that, that's a reason why you have those foreign foreign reserves. And 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 I, that is one of the dynamics that you're seeing in some of these auctions. Now, unfortunately, we don't know what, exactly what happened yesterday because this data comes out after the uh, the auction settled. And, and we get all of the other data. But the allotment data, when you look at it from the August auctions, certainly showed that there was a slowdown in demand uh, from foreign investors in a lot of the different issues across the curve. And I think that is in part because of this idea that they don't want to strengthen their own currency. Now, now of course, if, if they have a maturing bond, they might uh, participate in the auction just to, to roll over that bond. They're not buying new dollars or just rolling over the old dollars. Um, but, but you know, no new money is going to come in. And, and, and you know, even though even though you know interest rate dynamics are going to matter here because eventually uh, this might turn very significantly because once the once the fed's done hiking i think what's going to happen is that other central banks are going to be catching up and that's when you're going to see a significant turn in the dollar and once you see that turn in the dollar those all of those flows could wind up changing very quickly um, now i don't think that's going to happen until 2023 but um, but it is something to look out for because the the, the fed is ahead of the curve here well i can't say it's ahead of the curve. The, the, yeah, I was the Fed quote is ahead of one. other central banks in its hiking cycle, right? So therefore, it probably will stop before the other central banks are done. The Fed is the curve now. The <laughs> Fed is the curve. <laughs> Ira, just a, a quick 30 seconds, a, kind of a plumbing issue. Do the dealers buy, does the JP Morgans of the world and the Goldman Sachs, do they buy for their own account at auctions? They have to. Yeah, yeah, they they have to bid for a pro rata uh, amount. So okay. if there's 20 primary dealers, they each have to bid for five percent of the auction. So that's one reason why in the U.S. you won't ever have a failed auction, um, where you have less bids than you have uh, issued. But so so they do buy for their own account. But they've been getting much much smaller over the last couple of years in favor of money managers who are much more active and and really the incremental price setters at a lot of these auctions. See, so I just you know I don't know. Step up and buy them. See, these auctions, see, they're important. I just learned something there. Yeah, well, I mean, how important is an auction where you have a whole bunch of giant banks that are uh, that are required to bid? <laughs> yeah, but the, you want them to bid aggressively, so you got to put some competition out there. All right, Ira Jersey uh, covers interest rates. He's a strategist, Bloomberg Intelligence. Also, uh, we didn't get to talk to him about soccer, but he follows soccer religiously. Uh, he's also a part owner in some... Uh, I think a, a minor league, I think is a way to term it, um, soccer team, professional soccer team in central New Jersey. So go figure. How many strategists do you know that owns a, a soccer team? I mean, he's just like these big players. Next is going to be the Premier League. Some Americans have to care. Yep. 
Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Matt, there are a lot of electric vehicle companies out there. It just seems like... I saw a Lucid Air the other day. How was you know, it? I told my wife, I said, there's a Lucid. She said, what are you talking about? I said, Lucid Air. She said, I still don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> um, it was pretty cool. All right, yeah. Peter Wang, he's the CEO of Centro. Uh, what I love about, there's a lot of things I like about this company. One of it's based in Freehold, New Jersey. You know who came from Freehold, New Jersey? Uh, Grover Cleveland. Oh, jeez. No. Peter, can you help him out? Who else is yeah. a, came from Freehold, New Jersey? Yeah, we're in between... Uh, New York and the Pennsylvania and uh, the Philadelphia. <laughs> Good stuff. All right, Peter, talk to us about uh, Centro. What do you guys do there? What's, uh, talk to us about your business, your company. Centro's vision actually began in 2013 with a desire to transform the commercial fleet industry to like uh, uh, zero emission vehicles. Yeah, that has and remains our sole and uh, singular focus. Yeah, we grow from one low-speed vehicle in 2017 and to a full product line that currently we include eight commercial vehicles and the seven for you know street use with multiple variations and the one for off-road use yeah so so our our mission is really try to lead the transformation in this automotive industry and to try to become a leader in the electrical commercial vehicle sector that's a little bit. So, who's who's your who's your customer? Who's a, a typical customer for one of your vehicles? Uh, yes, it's mostly it's the free operators and also the municipals that provide the local service, and which is basically for the commercial use. Uh, morally, right now, it's like eighty percent of our our customers for city deliver and like urban services. So um, how much traction are you getting? I mean, what's your revenue growth look like and how are your projections? Yeah, we are already finished the, the, the phase for the uh, vehicle development and we are looking for the, the, the fast growing in the revenue and in the deliver, delivery and uh, we are building our distribution and, uh, and the aftermarket support network in America and Europe and some in Asia. So you've already I, you've already got 
what four or five thousand vehicles out uh yes so far yeah we already have more than i think more than five thousand already being out to the market so who, who do you compete against in in that part of the market we're all you know obviously familiar with the, the, the consumer automobile segment the teslas and and now all the OEM, other oems getting in there but who do you typically compete against who do you think you will compete against in this segment yes i think uh, you know the the company like uh like a workhorse you know that's our our you know primary competitor and also the living and because the living they produce uh, the pickups they also uh, 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 makes to deliver van so that's our I think the uh, the biggest uh, main competitor mm. in the market now, and uh, I think uh, uh, you know with the, all the the uh, product and la- ready, I think uh, we are kind of like a leading that sector at this moment. So let me just finally ask you about the supply chain and the chip management that you've been able to do. What does your supply chain look like, and uh, how is your access to microchips? Yeah, that was our, you know, last year's struggling. So, so I, just like everybody's struggling for the supply chain. And where I think we are in the very good position right now, because, uh, you know, some of the, our OEM is a tier one manufacturer and uh, from from China. And the previous, we have a little bit of shipping problem. And but now we see all the shipping uh, price going down and we are now able to get the container. I think, uh, you know, uh, uh, we are strongly uh, positioned and very well developed our supply chain base. I think uh, we, in the supply chain we're doing, I think we're doing very good. All right, Peter, good stuff. Uh, interesting story here. Peter Wang, he's the CEO of Centro, making electric vehicles for the commercial commercial vehicle uh, segment. So uh, interesting, you know, segment there that mm. likely will be uh, addressed there with a lot of competitors. So you good know, stuff there. What I'm very much focused on is in this space, but more of a consumer vehicle segment, uh, Harley Davidson today is down on the New York Stock Exchange. Um, today's the day that they merged their live wire electric motorcycle unit with um, the SPAC. The SPAC name is AEA Bridges Impact Corp. Hopefully, dear goodness, <laughs> yeah. they changed that name. Um, so it's going to be, I guess, called Livewire now. So you can get an electric Harley Davidson? Yes. Pound sterling. Steady here today. One spot, zero, seven, seven. But it has been under siege with mounting bets that it may below uh, drop below $1, the old parity thing. Let's bring in Stephen Gallo. Uh, he's head of European FX strategy for BMO Capital Markets. Stephen, is is parity for sterling? Is that a reasonable possibility? I think anything's a reasonable possibility, or uh, or more so in this in this FX environment with this type of volatility uh, and these types of swings. Um, we'd like to say the bottom for the cycle is in. Um, we're kind of hoping that the bottom for the cycle is in. The same goes for the top uh, in the U.S. dollar. Um, but I'd say we have moderate conviction uh, on that view at this stage. Um, in, in terms of the dollar side of the equation, we're pretty confident at this stage that most of what the Fed is signaling is now priced in. Uh, so the transmission of Fed policy to the FX market via interest rate differentials, we think that has largely run its course. But what we're less uh, what we're more concerned about and less, less certain is finished is the extent to which the FX market 
prices in a higher global recession probability, as well as the, the, the lingering effect or the ongoing effect, I should say, of quantitative tightening from the Fed. Uh, these concern us a lot for non-dollar currencies. Uh, if you think that most of the Fed uh, rate hikes are priced in, where do you see the terminal rate? Well, the BMO House is, uh, you know, it, around 4.6-ish, give or take, for the effective Fed funds rate. Oh, and that's what so he said, basically, at the press conference. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, rough, roughly in line with that, um, for the effective Fed funds rate, um, we've got them going twice more uh, in in 2022, and then hiking once again at the first meeting of, of 2023. But the you know the main the main point here is that that is largely already reflected and then some just by a little bit uh, into the dollar OIS curve. So I mean, if 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 we start to see um, you know core inflation showing clear signs of, of decelerating in the United States and, and we get one or two months of negative job prints, that, that will definitely be a big helping hand for um, this dollar peach story. But on the other side of that, um, we have to get through this issue of how bad the global and or U.S. recession is going to be. And we probably haven't gotten to the peak pricing for global recession risk just yet. Um, and until that happens, it's going to be harder for the dollar to fall sharply. Until we're confirmed that it is, until the Fed does a major pivot, it's going to be hard for the dollar to fall sharply. Well, you know, this is a question that Paul's been asking for a couple of weeks now, and um, we haven't really heard anyone say yes. Is there any bear case for the U.S. dollar? Is there a bear case for the U.S. dollar? Yeah, is there any bear um, case at all? In the in the medium to long term, potentially in the in the short run, uh, it's tough to see it. Uh, it. It's tough to see the dollar falling sustainably. Just, I mean, just look. I mean, if the Fed were to engineer some type of a pivot and were to confirm that it's not, and we're starting to see clear signs that core inflation pressures are rolling over and going in the Fed's preferred direction, the United States, the labor market is slowing. You still have all of these structural issues ongoing, geopolitical and structural issues um, on, on the capital flow side uh, for a number of major European currencies, for Asia, uh, ex-Japan currencies, for the Japanese yen. Um, that that the Fed pivoting to a neutral policy stance is not simply going to make go away. It might help the healing process begin for those structural um, flaws in those currencies, um, but it's not going to make them go away. Um, you know, when we're moving from an, an environment or an era of globalization on um, where we got very used to ultra low interest rates, quantitative easing, high asset valuations, to an unwinding of that. Um, it's very hard for non-dollar currencies to rally sustainably. Uh, so um, that's the picture, unfortunately. Stephen, you've been in this FX game a long time. What did you make in the actual trading of pound sterling over the past couple of days? Pretty, pretty wild moves there. <laughs> well, um, I, I'm, I'm a strategist, so uh, I don't, I don't have a direct. But I mean, it's just just, just the but, movements. Uh, what, what what was that market telling you? Just the market was just really confused. Give us an adjective. <laughs> I, I think I, I think look, we've, we've seen a very severe, but probably in my view, uh, long overdue uh, repricing of UK risk premia. 
um, because of the fiscal picture, because of the debt picture, because of the balance of payments picture. And I think that caught up with the currency and the gilt market this week and last week. And what you saw basically was a liquidity event. Uh, a low, a lack of liquidity in both the FX market and the gilt market, which made the price action ten times worse than it would have been uh, with that liquidity there. Right. Um, so, um, you know, we, we're getting into a situation now where risk premia are adjusting, but they're not adjusting in an orderly fashion. Right. All right. Good stuff. Appreciate it uh, as always, uh, Stephen Gallo, uh, BMO Capital Markets. We didn't even get FX. to the end. We didn't even get to the end, but that was. It seems like ancient history but that was just last week i know that the finance ministry intervened in the japanese yen right to uh defend the currency for the first time since 1998 that was 24 years ago yeah 98 remember it well good year hi i'm ron krzyzewski chairman and ceo of steeple financial advisors if you're not growing your practice you're losing market share steeple is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Look at the uh, housing market. We had uh, new home sales data came out today. Came in better than expected. Uh, 685,000 versus a consensus of 500,000. Uh, a little bit higher than last month, uh, which was revised higher. But certainly their housing uh, sales are coming down from the peak of the, the, the pandemic. The question is, can this housing market engineer a soft landing or will it be ugly? Can it survive like, rates? At can this it survive level? rates? And, and what did you say the mortgage rates today? 6.7%. 6. Yeah. That's uh, a long way from, you know, three and a quarter uh, from just, you know, a year ago. Sam Dunlap, CIO at Angel O Capital joins us. Sam, I'd love to get your thoughts on kind of the, the regis, you know, the residential real estate market here. How do you, how do you characterize the last few years and, and then maybe where we are right now? Yeah, thanks for having me on. Great question. You know, the to your point on you know, can housing achieve a, a soft landing? And given the pace of appreciation we saw and and home prices really post pandemic, um, it's clearly very difficult to sustain those type of levels. And and as you all know, you know, Case Shiller came out this morning and uh, it, it was below expectations and and one of the more swift declines we've seen in the index. Um, you know, rising 16% on a year over year basis. Uh, but we expect, you know, home, the home pace of the home price appreciation clearly cannot sustain uh, the, the current levels. 
but you know the housing market was really benefiting from you know this historic supply and demand mismatch that that market participants have been identifying for years. Uh, but the extraordinarily low mortgage rates fueled surging home prices, particularly during COVID. While that's not sustainable, uh, you know we do expect a very favorable supply and, and demand dynamic in U.S. housing supporting home prices, uh, but the pace of appreciation clearly cannot cannot keep up. What does it look like uh, in terms of U.S. housing that makes you feel like it's supportive in terms of the supply and demand, right? Is there just not enough land? Are builders um, still having trouble getting uh, construction materials? Are, is labor the problem? W- what's the issue? On the supply side, yeah. On the supply side, is you know we just historically underbuilt really after the global financial crisis, and that that really has not changed. And very similar to the dynamics that we saw in the, in the late 1970s with the baby boomers, you know they were forming households at a very brisk pace. Uh, we're still seeing that from the millennials, you know, on annualized pace of approximately 1.2 million uh, household formations uh, today, and that's very supportive. Is is you know the demand for single family family shelter, particularly coming out of COVID, still remains strong, uh, but affordability has really been the challenge here as the Fed is, is inflicted, as, as Chairman Powell wanted, a lot of pain clearly on the economy and the, the initial transmission mechanism has definitely been surging mortgage rates, as you pointed out, mm. and that's really hurt the affordability aspect, but the underlying demand uh, and lack of, of supply and, and just the, the fact of how underbuilt uh, U.S. housing is, we think, you know, achieves that soft landing. For, for U.S. housing and, and not the you know extreme downturn that we saw really coming out of the, the financial crisis. What are you doing in your fund, Sam? You manage the Angel Oak Multi-Strategy Income Fund, the uh, Strategic Credit Fund, the Core Impact Fund, the um, Multi-Strategy Income UCITS Fund. I don't even know what UCITS means, but what, what are you, you doing just, yeah. in those funds right now? Yeah, so you know the the mortgage market, like all areas of fixed income, has been under a tremendous amount of pressure this year, just given the swift pace of tightening and, and a complete revision of, of Fed expectations. But uh, mortgages have been particularly sensitive to what we were describing as really a volatility shock. So you know we we went through the first phase of the inflation shock, as as inflation went parabolic this year, as we all um, know very well at this point. Uh, but also you saw uh, rates clearly reprice very swiftly and, and volatility surging in, in the interest rate world to historic highs. And, and from a volatility perspective, we're really at, at crisis-like levels uh, from, a, from an historical standpoint. And uh, that presents an extraordinarily favorable time uh, for mortgages in particular as uh, we view you know, this near-term event as not necessarily a credit event uh, where you know, mortgage credit is, is frankly pristine and it's the best that we've ever seen it. Um, the the underwriting standards have been extraordinary. Unemployment remains very, very low, and we still have a very brisk labor market. Uh, but, but mortgages, given the volatility and rate shock that we've seen, have, have really widened out from a spread perspective. Both agency and not agency mortgages uh, prevent a, pre- present, in our view, an extraordinarily favorable opportunity here uh, to lock in you know, equity-like returns and, and very high-quality areas of fixed income. Uh, and we think that you know, patient investors will, will be rewarded um, you know, in this, amidst this volatility shock we're currently in. Sam, just about 30 seconds, but where does demand destruction come in from a mortgage rate perspective here? Well, I think you're starting to see that demand destruction uh, 
pretty significantly just given the deterioration that we've seen in affordability. But as, okay. as mortgage investors, uh, you know, it's not necessarily contingent on the pace of housing activity. We definitely expected a slowdown in housing activity. Uh, but what's important clearly is more of the delinquencies and what that uh, actual home price is if you actually have a default, uh, particularly in not agency mortgages and what that ultimate recovery value is. And so, uh, you know, if you think about the LTV of the U.S. housing market today at approximately 30 uh, percent, we've never seen this much equity in the housing right. market. So we think, you know, the, the resiliency of, of the underlying asset class will, will hold up quite well. Yep. But there is a tremendous amount of demand destruction just given the surge that we've seen in mortgage rates. Yep. Uh, and, and again, activity will continue to slow. All right, Sam. Good stuff. Really appreciate getting uh, uh, the review update on the mortgage market, housing market. Sam Dunlap, CIO at Angel Oak Capital, uh, talking about the housing market here. Such a surge in the early part of the pandemic coming back down to reality. Hurricane Ian, it made landfall in Cuba. Now it's got its sights on Florida. It looks like the west coast of Florida is going to get the brunt of it. Of course, that brings into question Tampa. And when you think about big, big metro cities, you think about, you know, some of the insured losses there and what that means for some of the big insurance companies, in addition to the good folks on the ground. Matthew Palazzola, Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Analyst covering pro- uh, property and casualty insurance. He joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Tampa's a big market, big insured market. What are some of the estimates here of potential damage? And apparently it's not a place that gets hit by hurricanes a lot. Does not get hit by hurricanes often. Uh, there were some analogs in the 1800s, the the 40s, the 50s, um, but nothing directly hitting Tampa. Lloyd's of London has a scenario, not for this storm specifically, but for a direct hit on Tampa, which could be a hundred billion dollars of damage. Now that's big, right? That is big. That would be the biggest insured loss ever. I don't know if it would, this storm is probably not getting to that level, but if we're talking about insured value in the region, that's that's what we're looking Holy at. Uh, it's gonna miss the oil rigs, right? So it's not gonna go, Brian Sullivan was telling us yesterday, it's probably yep. not gonna Veer be west. west enough to hit the oil um, production hubs. That is correct. So it's it's really focusing more more east. So the models come out every six hours and they've been shifting. Initially, they were all the way from Louisiana to Florida, but they've been moving uh, more and more east to, to the Florida. So how far is it right now from the Florida coast? So it's about 48 hours from from landfall in Florida. And we still don't know. The latest run literally just came out minutes before I came in here was a little more south of Tampa. So a little bit better of a forecast from an insured loss point of view, a category one to two versus a two to three uh, and south of Tampa. Okay. So what are some of the companies that maybe have exposure there from an insurance perspective? Or so, so it's interesting what's going on is the reinsurance companies will definitely have exposure. Those are names like... Uh, so a reinsurer insures the insurance company. Exactly. So those guys are the ultimate risk bearers, right? The reinsurers? Well, the, so the primary insurer retains a lot of the risk and then they give some to the reinsurance okay, company, okay. Not, not all of it. And it's interesting what's happening in Florida now anyway is reinsurance companies don't want to be there. There's rampant fl- uh, fraud in the state aside from the, the risk of these hurricanes. In Florida? <laughs> <laughs> no, yes, very much so. So they've been stepping back to begin with. So before any of this is even happening, uh, primary companies are having a lot of trouble getting reinsurance to the point where some of them are leaving the state uh, or actually going insolvent. 
Interesting. So, uh, who are the biggest reinsurers? Are we talking about Munich Re or international? Yeah. Uh, so the, the biggest reinsurers in the world are, are this Munich Re, Swiss Re. Um, the, I don't cover them. The companies I cover are based out of Bermuda. Their names like Renaissance Re, Everest Re. They probably have. They will definitely have some exposure. Probably less than than the bigger companies, though. So, how about some of the primary insurers that might have some risk? I mean, I just think of all those gleaming office towers that all the Wall Street firms have, are, are taking up now in the law firms. I mean, it is a major skyline. It is a major city. Man, I just I, some of these insurance companies might really be, I'm sure they're paying attention to it like of you are. Of course they are, of course they are. So the, the biggest um, the biggest primary insurer is State Farm, which is not a public company. Okay. Uh, then there's also a lot of the homes in the state are with the state fund. So okay. that's it's the taxpayers essentially paying for it themselves. There's other names like Allstate, um, Chubb would be an AMAIG who would have uh, exposure to maybe commercial properties, not not outsized though. So um, w does FEMA have any bearing on this? I mean, do they go in there and, and help out to some extent or? I think it, it, I guess so. It will, you know, eventually depending on how bad it is, it, it wouldn't matter dramatically for the insurance companies uh, what what FEMA does, but I guess it all depends on the severity of the storm. What, what's the big story long-term thought about the insurance business climate change just more and more yeah, radical you know there's kind bound of to be a big take on more it fires too. bigger fires more floods bigger floods hurricanes all that kind of stuff yeah it's all it's all happening i mean um the reinsurers are kind of the first line in this so they're the ones that are stepping back and saying these risks are getting too big to take uh what probably will happen we just had a call today with someone who said there might be more public private Partnerships, meaning the, re the insurance companies are just going to say, we're just not doing it. And if you want to live close to a wildfire area or you want to live in a hurricane-prone area, then the state is going to have to work out some solution with you. And it's going to ultimately fall on taxpayers. But you do see um, uh, these kind of events happening more frequently. We do. I mean, there's no one is saying that uh, climate change is not happening. I would say one thing. There was a big period of kind of benign weather right before this and now we're seeing more extreme so could we could we be in a, a mean reversion or could we be in a kind of crazier weather forever right uh, you know we don't know all right good stuff matthew palazzola bloomberg intelligence senior analyst covering the property insurance business joining us in studio he does not phone it in. Uh, he comes in studio. So we're talking about uh, Hurricane Ian. Uh, obviously, it's a big, big, big issue for all the good folks down there in Florida to deal with. Uh, looks like it'll be a pretty significant storm. But there's also the uh, the business end of it, the P&L end of it, which is uh, the insurance angle uh, and kind of what is the insurable uh, losses potential in some of these markets. So guys like Matthew help us out there. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.